Hi Podders, this is Gary Scott Irvin, just bringing you podcast number 15, continuation of John Cleese's interview with Ian Hanamansing in um, Montreal in July, when he attended the Montreal Comedy Festival and introduced one of the galas there, the closing night gala. And this was an interview he did the night before with Ian Hanamansing, as I say, from CBC. He's one of the best broadcasters there, and it was a great interview. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Well, let's talk more about fame, and before we do that, let's take a, a look at a clip from a movie that uh, catapulted your fame in the United States, Wanda. <laughs> oh, those terrible lies he told about the CIA. <laughs> so painful. And when he heard your daughter's name was Portia? Yeah. He said, why did they name her after a car? <laughs> I love the way you laugh. Oh, I love you. You're funny. Mm, how come a girl as bright as you could have a brother who's so... Don't call me stupid. <laughs> Jesus Christ! unreservedly. You take it back. I do. I offer a complete and utter retraction. The imputation was totally without basis in fact and was in no way fair comment and was motivated purely by malice and I deeply regret any distress that my comments may have caused you or your family and I hereby undertake not to repeat any such slander at any time in the future. Okay. Thank you. Now, you were pointing out uh, in the scene where Kevin Klein was holding you by the feet, the bystanders looking, yes. they were real bystanders Some of them were real the bystanders, yeah. believe it or not. We didn't realize they were going to be there in the first time we did the shot. And we had to do it several times. And I have to tell you, hanging upside down was fairly unpleasant. So I had to practice it. I mean, every day they would hang me upside down for 10 or 15 minutes, and I've never learned any speech as carefully and as well as that. I'm not sure people remember Kevin Klein before that movie, but... I don't think a lot of people would have imagined him playing this kind of comic, over-the-top role. Why did you cast him? Well, sometimes I see someone on screen, and I'm just so drawn to their energy. And uh, in that particular case, I'd seen Sophie's Choice, 
And I thought, who is this guy? I'd never seen him before. And I, I rang up the fellow who actually eventually produced Wanda, and I said, tell me about Kevin Klein. And he said, well, aren't you going to Australia next week? And I said, yes. And he said, well, he's going to be there. So I called him, and we had dinner in Sydney. And literally, at the end of dinner, I said to him, you know, um, I would love to do something with you. And uh, eventually, I suppose about two or three years later, we were working on that together. And he's a genius, this man. He's a genius, genius actor. And the extraordinary thing is, he's like Eddie Izzard, but Eddie goes out on stage not having any idea what he's going to say. I mean, literally, which would terrify me. But Kevin goes in front of the camera, and when the, when the clapperboard goes like that, he doesn't know what he's going to do. And he's a, he's a bugger to edit because he does different things in different shape, in different takes. So cutting them together, the editor said, is very difficult. But what he comes up with is just extraordinary. So in that speech where he's mixing in some swear words and some insults towards you, I, I detected a bit of Python-esque kind of humor, but then stuff that didn't really sound like Python. Was there some improvisation in that scene? Well, we improvised in rehearsal, because I think that when you're on set with 40 people there making the movie, it's a bit late to start improvising. But if you have a proper rehearsal period, then that's the, that's the chance to improvise. And we also worked on the script together. We met in the West Indies about two uh, for about a week, a whole week, we just sat there and, and every day uh, we would work for two or three hours and, and one day, for example, he was just doing the thing and he suddenly went, <laughs> sniffed under his arm. And I thought, that's wonderful. Why did you do that? And he said, why did I do what? I said, oh, he said, oh, I don't know. So, I mean, it was such a wonderful moment. We then put it throughout the script so that the script was, in a sense, was written together with all the characters. And if you haven't seen the movie and you don't know why John is doing that, rent the DVD, because his character occasionally gets inspiration by sniffing his own armpit. That's right. Yes. And he was... He, the, the, the wonderful thing about that character of Otto, which I think is one of the best I've ever helped to write, um, was that it was based on a two-page ad that I saw in Los Angeles magazine once. And it was for a series of seminars that were being offered by a young fellow called... Um, Zen Master Rama, who looked uh, about 32 years of age and looked like someone who was sort of serving behind the counter in a drugstore. He had this very kind of uncertain look about him and funny sort of end of summer um, dandelion hair. But this was the guy who was offering these great uh, tutorials in Buddhist, Buddhist philosophy. And I remember the headline caught mine because it said, Buddhism gives you the competitive edge. <laughs> <laughs> and that gave me the idea for Otto as someone who's read all this stuff and completely misunderstood it all. <laughs> Now, speaking of Buddhism, I, I was curious and asked you earlier today whether there was a moment where you lost an audience, where you're standing in front of an audience and you realize you've said the wrong thing. Yes, I was telling Ian this, and it is quite funny. I know a wonderful incarnate lama called Sogyal Rinpoche, and he wrote an incredibly successful book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. I don't know if you've read it, but it's sold millions. It's a marvelous book, you know. And I, I met him about 15 years ago. I actually gone to meet the Dalai Lama, and um, I, 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 I just was invited along, and somebody said, oh, come and meet the Dalai Lama. And I said, no, I'm not a proper Buddhist. Oh, no, no, let the real Buddhists meet him. And eventually, I was asked about six times, and I, I, I thought, oh, well, it's a wonderful opportunity. I was with my, uh, my older daughter, Cynthia, so we went and stood in the line. And when I came up to the Dalai Lama, I thought, well, what, what do you say? 
to the Dalai Lama. Do you say, are you enjoying this particular incarnation? Or <laughs> do you say, where, where, do you get, where did you get your sandals? Or, you know, anything you say is good. So I didn't, deliberately didn't know what I was going to say. And when I met him, and he is really, I think, the finest human being alive, I looked at him for about five seconds, and we both just started to laugh. And we laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And then I said, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> this is my daughter. And as I went away, a lovely uh, guy came up and said, well, I'm, I'm, a, um, uh, I'm a, a llama. Um, and he said, I'm known as the laughing llama because I use humor so much. And this was Sogyal Rinpoche. So after the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying had been out for 10 years, so this is about three years ago, he was doing a special 10th anniversary um, talk, teaching, series of teachings in a huge place in Victoria in South London. And Alice Faye, my wife, and I went along there and he said, would you get up before I go out and just talk to the audience and introduce me? And I said, I'd love to, because I had a bit from the book that I thought was very funny, so I thought I'll read that out, I'll be safe. And uh, I met him behind, we hadn't seen, seen each other for a little bit, and we just had a quick word, and he said, all right, go on down. Now I was led down, and I went out, and there was this huge, huge, huge audience, this very big, long hall, and all these Buddhists, as far as the eye could see, and for some reason, I suppose I was feeling relaxed, because Buddhists are great people to be around, I just... Um, got up to the microphone and I said, Hello, Buddhists. <laughs> it struck me as terribly funny. <laughs> and I was the only person in the building who thought it was remotely amusing. It did not get a smile. It was, it was one of the most awful, embarrassing moments of my life. They were not an easy audience. Even Sagyal Rinpoche, who's very funny, took, it took a, a long time for him to warm them up. But I don't think I've ever, ever had a joke fall quite so flat. Actually, I'll tell a joke now, because this will fall very flat. It's the only joke this year that made me laugh. <clears throat> and it is uh, Dick Cheney hears that George Bush's ratings, approval ratings, are at 32%. And he goes along to the Oval Office and he says, George, what's your secret? <laughs> ah! I told that the other day, it was like telling jokes to Buddhists. So when you're in front of a live audience, obviously you get instant feedback about what's funny and what's yes, not funny. Yes. Movies, much different thing. You have no sense, and I was surprised to hear that on A Fish Called Wanda, you actually changed the movie a little bit based on what some of the test audiences Well, said. you see, when I started in the theater, what I would go, I'd go out with my friends from Cambridge, the Cambridge Footlights, and we'd do the show. And then afterwards, we'd go back and say, why didn't we get that laugh? That seemed to go on a little bit too long. Um, we need another line here. 
what went, what went wrong at that moment, and you talk about it, you have a couple of drinks, the next day you get into the rehearsal room uh, a few minutes early, you rehearse for ten minutes, just a few points, you go on stage and you try it. One or two of the things are better and one or two of them still don't work. So that's the natural thing to do. You try it in front of an audience, what works, what doesn't. Now when you're editing a movie, it's absolutely marvellous to be able to present the edit to the, to the uh, audience and then to see how they respond. Because you learn things that you'd never, ever be able to guess. Now sometimes that's characterized as a, the audience relations people with the studio, the financial people just trying to sweeten up a movie to make more money. But you describe it as part of the, the creative process, a good part of the creative process. Well, I think so, because you know the idea that anything is funny if the audience doesn't laugh, you can hang on to that on Monday night. They don't laugh. You know, and you think, it doesn't matter, it's a stupid audience. They will vote. <laughs> Tuesday night, they don't laugh, and you think, another stupid audience. Anyway, it was very hot, and maybe I mistimed the line. Wednesday, they don't laugh. It's not funny. You simply don't argue with audiences. You really don't. And, why, and one of the reasons for that is that you know maybe that something's funny but you really don't know how funny. For example, in Fish Called Wanda, when um, I was doing the, the Russian, no idea what it meant. Um, Jamie was writhing around on the rope. That, the audience loved that so much, we, in the editing, we doubled the length of that sequence. We doubled the length of it. Michael Palin, with the chips up his nose, which when I saw it in rushes, I thought this is the funniest thing that I've ever been involved in in my life. I've never been professionally as happy as I was that evening. It was, the, it was wonderful. When we started showing it to the audience, they didn't laugh very much. So we kind of played around with it. We shortened it and shortened it, and eventually we got it right. But again, we had to reduce it to about half its length. I couldn't understand it. And eventually, we, we started to ask people, because I, I, I like the audience reaction. I want to know when they're bored and when they don't understand something and when they don't believe something and when they're offended. They're the only things I want to know, then I want to fix it. But on this occasion, we said to the audience, why don't you laugh at Michael Palin when he can't, you know, he can't breathe, he's got the chips up his nose and the map. I said, it's hilarious. And they said, no, we're worried about it. <laughs> I said, what are you worried about? He said, well, we're worried he can't breathe. say, we're worried that he's so distressed about his fish being eaten. We said, but wait, 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 wait. People, I've kept fish. You know, you have six zebra tetras. You have four angelfish. They don't, by and large, have individual names. You don't say, oh, there's Tom, there's Charlie, there's Brenda. You know what I mean? You have these fish and you like looking at them. And every now and again, one or two of them die and you go to the fish shop and you get replacement. They're not you don't have a very highly individual relationship with a particular fish. You see, it's not like a dog. You know, they're all oh, the dog died this morning. Let's go get another one. It's not, you see what I mean? So, we said to them, okay, I understand that you're worried, but he's eating the fish. He's eating, well, he's such a nice chap. He's such a nice chap, and he is so distressed. And you say, but wait a moment. He spent the entire movie trying to kill an old woman. <laughs> and they said, oh yeah. <laughs> well, she wasn't a very nice old woman. <laughs>
They really said. So how can you guess how an audience is going to respond when their reactions are sometimes as unpredictable? I'd say almost as scrambled as that. You see, so that's, I think, why you, you have to show it to an audience. But it's exactly what you do if you're on stage. So it's not always clear to you, even with all of your experience, what makes an audience laugh until you finally see it happen. Let's finish this first section of the conversation with this. What makes you laugh these days? Well, I'll tell you something sad. It's, it, it is this. It's <laughs> as you get older, I don't think you laugh quite so much. And the trouble is, there's only sort of 8 million jokes in the world. And when you've been doing it, as I have, for 43 years, literally, since 1963, I, I now know... 7,980,000 of those jokes. And even the ones I don't know, I can kind of guess. I can guess what the shape is. So the things that make me, and I don't laugh as much, I see occasionally, when you're young, you're a young comic and 20, and you discover Buster Keaton, or in my case, Peter Cook, or then Woody Allen, and then Steve Martin. You know, these are great moments, but as you get older, it's not so frequent to be really excited by a new discovery. I remember how excited I was when I saw Eddie Izzard, and then when I saw Bill Hicks on tape, who I thought was absolutely amazing. You don't know that name, go and look his stuff up. But there's not so much stuff around, it's more the things that, it's, it's the real life things. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a couple of experiences. I was staying in a hotel in Scotland, this is a few years ago, and um, I'd, ordered, I'd ordered breakfast. Um, and I said, will you deliver it to my room? I'm going to go in the shower, you see. So I, I put the phone down, and I, I, I went in the shower, and I dried myself off. And I heard the knock, knock, knock. And I said, uh, come in, please. Um, just put the tray on the, uh, on the table in the, in, the, in the living room. And I heard the door open, and the maid came in, obviously, with the train. I dried myself off, and I sat down on the loo, stark naked, and uh, I fortunately was reading a newspaper, and the door of the bathroom opened, and she looked in and said, Oh, I wondered where you were. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't a tabloid paper. <laughs> <laughs> then I was in Oxford, and I'd been to a wonderful dinner at Merton College, and I got back very late, and I said to the, the guy on the desk, will you give me a call in the morning at 9 o'clock, but I'm going to sleep till then. So I went off, and I was sleeping quite heavily, and then suddenly, brrr, brrr, so I picked the phone, and said, yes, and they said, this is your 5.30 alarm call. <laughs> And I say, no, 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 my, my alarm calls 9 o'clock, really, but not for, for someone else's. You put the phone down, and you think, and you're kind of irritated, you know, and it's hard to get to sleep for a moment. And then I was just beginning to drift off. Yes, just to apologize for waking you up. Because <laughs> you couldn't write a line like that. And the latest one... When I get into a hotel, because I'm old, I like to do a little bit of stretching. Well, you know what happens when you get into a hotel now. First of all, it's knock, knock, knock. I mean, first of all, you get into the room, okay? You get into the room with the cases, and, and the guy has to tell you how the television works and how the air conditioning works. You keep tipping him to get rid of him. He finally goes, 
Then it's not, not, not. Somebody comes in with a plate of fruit. Then not, not, not. Would you like some ice? Then not, not, not. And there's somebody there, um, a young woman who speaks no known language, and you know that she wants to turn the bed down, and you don't know how to say, um, don't turn the bed down, please, in Bulgarian, so you let her in. Any and eventually I got rid of all these people. I suddenly remembered the golden rule of hotels, which is that your hotel room is not your own until you put up the do not disturb sign. So I put the do not disturb sign up. I stripped down to my underpants and I started doing my stretching on the carpet and, and I was unreasonably furious. <laughs> And I went to the door and I thought, if this person does not have the perfect excuse, I am going to attack them physically. <laughs> and I open the door and there's a nice young man standing out there in hotel uniform and he points at the sign and he says, is this supposed to be out here? <laughs> Well, thank you very much for the first portion of this. We're going to take a 10-minute intermission, 10-minute intermission, and there are going to be a couple of microphones set up. In fact, I guess they're already there. So if you'd like to ask a question in the second half, please be prepared to do that now. And uh, we'd like to get through lots of questions in the second half, so make them short and don't try out your monologue here. And uh, so we'll be back in 10 minutes, and you get a chance to have your conversation with John Cleese. Thank you. That was the John Cleese Podcast 1515. Visit the website thejohncleese.com. Uh, this was put in by Funk. Funk, that's F-U-N-K dot co dot U-K. Hey.